So as we continue in our series, Philippians, let's go ahead and turn there. Uh, we're going to be in Philippians chapter 1 today. My name is Josh, and I serve as one of the pastors here at Redeemer, and it's a privilege to be a part of this church. I love these people dearly. So if you're visiting with us, we're glad that you're here. And we are in week two of a series in Philippians. But before we, uh, before we get going, let me, let me pray. I need, I need God's help. Father, you have my attention this morning, every, every bit of it, as I uh, am reminded that I have to have you. I have to have you. There's no other choice. There's no other way. There's no other, there's no other life to live other than one who has been bought by Christ, one who's been owned, purchased, and loved since the beginning before the beginning of the world. We thank you for the eternal love that you have for your people. And in return, we are so thankful. We're so grateful. We, 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 we give up our lives to you in response. We say that if, you, if you're the one who purchased us with your own blood, if you said you are mine now, then we willingly and joyfully say, yes, we are. We we say, yeah, God, I'll take you. I want you. It's such a beautiful thing to say, Christ is mine. And I can, I can lay hold and I can, as you so often commanded your people, I can cling to you. And so, Lord, we, we do that as a body. Each one of these people here, uh, we're in different spheres of life right now. And there is, an, there is a temptation each one of us has to stop clinging to our Lord. And so, Lord, we stand, or rather sit, uh, and repent. We repent of those days, those conversations, those thoughts where we loosed our grip of our mighty King, Savior. And we run to the cross, we stand assured, because we know this whole time, while wow, you've called us to hold you fast, you're the one holding us. You're the one securing us. You're the one who said that no one, including Satan himself, can snatch my sheep out of my hand. And so we come to you this morning as a gathered body with confidence that we are safe in the hands of our Redeemer. And we come to you this morning with a hunger and a thirst for your word. Would you please, God, speak? You have our attention. We pray that you'd have more and more of our heart. In Christ's name, amen. He's back. He's finally back. Epaphroditus, he's returned. And he has a letter. He has a letter from Paul. Can you believe it? So listen, 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 shh, listen. We're all gathering at Lydia's house tonight so that the pastor can read us the letter to us, the letter to the Philippians. So, hey, tell Clement, tell Uodia, tell Syntyche, the church assembles tonight. And off they go. What it must have been like to get 
these words. What it must have been like to hear this news. See, for months, the Philippians were waiting. They had sent off their brother to inquire about the status of Paul. How's he doing? When is his trial? What are people saying? Are the Roman brothers and sisters helping them, him in prison? What does he need? Paul was in chains, and they had to know how he was faring. And so now, they finally have that privilege to gather together to hear from him. And some 2,000 years later, we have the unthinkable privilege of peering inside this letter to see a gospel friendship between a church and its planter. Last week, Pastor David gave us insight into the background of this letter. How did the church start? What kind of people were they? And then we saw in verses 1 to 11 how Paul described this partnership, how he described his love for them, and he prayed for them. And so then here's what comes next. Here's just a little, if if you're interested, a history lesson, so to speak. What comes next typically in an ancient letter after there's some greetings, after there's an initial hello, there's an update, what you call a disclosure section, where you begin to tell about your life. Much like we would do here if we were writing a letter, I would say, hey, how you doing? Miss you. How are the kids? And then you'd share about how you're doing, right? That's so that is the part of the letter we're in now, where Paul is going to share about his circumstances, his personal updates, his struggles, his needs, etc. And that's where, I should say, you would think Paul would go. But look at what he does in Philippians chapter 1, verse 12. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial garden to the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Now stop right there. Paul, what are you doing? If we're being careful New Testament readers, Paul, you just went off there. I think you're missing the point. This is that part of the letter where you're supposed to share how you are doing. How are you feeling? How are the guards treating you? But we hear none of that from Paul. Did you see how he described himself? Really, not at all. Just with one word, an imprisonment. Instead, Paul only talks about how his circumstances are directly impacting the gospel moving forward in Rome. Did you hear me on that? The only thing that Paul is interested in sharing is how the gospel is moving forward in Rome. Instead of sharing about the events themselves, He's sharing about how he's maneuvering, how he's manipulating, how he's leveraging his circumstances to see the gospel advance. Paul's blinding passion to see Christ's name spread is so dominant in his outlook on life. It's so dominant on his worldview that the only way that he can even talk about his imprisonment is through the filter of evangelism, through the filter of mission. See, this is a total... I mean totality, a total Christian mindset where the gospel reigns so much in your head, the gospel dominates your heart so much that it even impacts the way we stay up to speed with one another. So when he's checking in on them or they're checking in on him, the gospel is the very center of that conversation. So brothers and sisters, this this one surprised me. I wasn't ready for this this morning, well, this text has something underneath it that really is the thrust of the whole thing, that even personal welfare is filtered through the gospel at work in our lives. That's number one in your notes, the first thing you see there in your notes. Even personal welfare, checking in on each other, is filtered through the gospel 
at work in our lives. This is why, if I can just be honest with you, this is why Paul is so demanding to read. He just doesn't see life the way we do. He sees literally every circumstance. That's hard to imagine. Literally every circumstance according to how it's helping or not helping the gospel advance. He's just not interested to share about the quality of his mattress or the, or the quality of his food. He's only interested in what God is doing with the gospel. See, I needed to hear that again. I think we need to hear that again. Are we thinking that way when we have the opportunity? Very practically, we do this all the time. When we have the opportunity to exchange life updates, how you doing? When we have the opportunity to sit down and grab dinner together, is the gospel and its traction the very center of that conversation between two believers? Or have we gotten accustomed to talking about more frivolous things? Is the gospel the core? Because listen, listen, if we can't get to the place with one another where Jesus and his gospel advancing are a typical, the normal, the central aspect of our care for each other, then the community that we have, the, the fellowship that we have, the intimacy that we have will really just be anchored in the sinking sands of culture. That's what the world does. The world gets close through talking about football. We get close because we have a risen Savior, and he has a gospel that's moving. That's Christian fellowship. And so am I saying that we shouldn't or can't talk about the mundane challenges that we have or the things that we love? No. I celebrated the Knowles winning a miraculous game yesterday. It's fun. I got to see my team win. But it doesn't matter. It's unimportant. So should young mothers never talk about the challenges of sleepless nights? No. Of course not. I'm not saying that. Should real estate agents never talk to real estate agents about what's going on? Should friends never laugh together over silly things? I'm not saying any of that because all of that is a part of genuine friendship. They all have their place. But none of those things define us. When Paul has the opportunity for the first time in a decade to talk to these people, the only thing he wants to talk about is Jesus' name moving forward. That is critical for how we are going to define ourselves as a church. What makes us different from the world is what we value. And what we value is what we're going to talk about. So Paul shows that gospel progress has top priority in the life of a Christian and even in the updates of my life. Wow, that's hard to do. That's exceptionally hard to do because, first one to admit it, we've learned the art of not going gospel deep with one another. And I'm trying, praying, God, help me with this one. Help me with this one. Help me get to the place where I'm talking with people. It's going to move to that next layer. So this is what Paul's talking about. This is his topic, how the gospel is advancing. And he's going to provide two ways. He's going to show us two ways that it's advancing. First, you see this in your notes. His chains advance the gospel to those outside the church. His chains are advancing the gospel to those outside the church. He says in verse 13, it's become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. Well, that makes sense, right? That makes sense. It'd be natural for the guards to inquire about why he's there. And as we've already seen about Paul, he's going to pounce on that opportunity. He tells them that he's in prison for Christ. But listen, he's not only in prison for Christ. I know that's what the ESV says right here, and that's fine. 
But the simplest way to translate this little, that last little phrase in verse 13 is my imprisonment is in Christ. It's a simple little uh, preposition, in. My imprisonment is in Christ. Paul is not only saying he's in prison because he's preached the gospel. That's, that's, the, that's the reason, that's the, that's the tangible cause of his imprisonment. But he's also saying that he's in prison because he is in Christ. He's attached to his Lord. For Paul, preaching the gospel is not something he just does as a guilt thing for his master. It's something that he does because he's with him and he loves him. I'm in prison because I love my Savior, Jesus. This is identity language. It's intimacy language. I'm here because I'm suffering like my Lord suffered. And so in one sense, Paul already is experiencing what he so badly wants to experience in chapter 3, verse 10. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection. And I may what? Share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Paul is sharing in his sufferings right now. Paul gets to be a part of, not the saving activity of the cross, but the suffering activity of the cross. And that's precious to him. He considers it a privilege to suffer like Christ. And I think that is how he is preaching the gospel to these imperial guards. So can you imagine being a guard? Go, go there in your head. Imagine being one of these elite troops of Caesar. And you ask Paul, why are you here? Well, I'm glad you asked. I am in Christ. I belong to him. I'm one with him. I love him so much. Let me tell you about him. This mighty Jesus is God's own son who came here in humility. He came here in obedience to die your just penalty and mine. He died on a, catch this, Roman cross because a Roman governor sent him there. He willingly took my sins and yours to that cross. He died our death. But listen, he certainly didn't stay there. With Roman soldiers standing outside the tomb, he was raised from the dead. He overcame death. He defeated sin forever. And he calls all peoples, all nations. He calls Rome. He calls Caesar. He calls you. He calls me to believe upon the name of Jesus Christ, to trust in him for salvation. And because, listen, one day, one day coming soon, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, we are not going to salute Caesar. We're going to salute and kneel before Christ. That is what he's saying to these guys shackled to chains. He is my Savior. He is my Lord. And the best thing, he is my friend. He's mine. And I'm his. you got to know him. So right under the nose, I mean, you can't get any closer to emperor worship, which was what the Romans were doing, the main thing they were doing, was uh, worshiping their own emperor. Paul is preaching Christ as emperor, Christ as universal king. Is there a more threatening place to preach the gospel? Probably not, but he doesn't care. That's because as we'll find out last, or next week, for me to live is Christ. And to die, that's gain. Bring it. That's how he lived. Okay, so we see the gospel advancing to those outside the church. And number two, you see the gospel advancing through those inside the church. Through those inside the church. Verse 14 says this. And most of the brothers 
having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. So here's an interesting twist on what's happened to Paul while he's in Rome. Not only is his bondage leading to him personally sharing the gospel, it's also strengthening, emboldening other people to do the same thing. Paul's situation has sent jolts into the lives of Roman Christians. Now, isn't that interesting? You would think that Paul's imprisonment would lead to Christian fear. Did you see what happened to Paul? I don't want to be a part of that. You would think that people would retreat. But the opposite is happening. The fire for the gospel's advance begins to blaze all the more in Rome because Paul was arrested. They are preaching Christ fearlessly. That's so attractive to me. That that last line, to speak the word without fear. To dare is what the word, the original thing is, to dare to speak the word. I love that. It's so attractive to think about evangelizing without fear. I want that. Last week, after those, uh, we had a beach baptism last week, and uh, many of you know Carol Rebido, um, sweet woman. She, she came up to me. I don't think she's here today. Um, no, okay. Um, she came up to me and uh, you know, kind, of, kind of in a, in a hurry. And I said, hey, there's this guy over here. He's, he's in bad shape and he knows it. He knows he, he needs God. He, want, he wants to talk. Can you come talk with him? And you want to talk about like one of the best opportunities you can have as a Christian. Somebody's wanting to talk about Christ. But here's the issue. I froze. Fear. And a little bit of inconvenience. I didn't feel like it. Right, there was that moment. So I'm, so I'm thinking through all these things like, ah, I've been through this. I've been through a very similar situation before. I didn't get anywhere. I'm just not really excited about this. And I, ah, it just, my mind was all over the place. And Carol, thank God, literally woke me up and said, I mean, she, she didn't know what was going on in my head, but she's, hey, I mean, this is what we're here for, right? This is why we're here. This is why we do this. This is what we're made to do. And so with the best conviction that you could possibly have, I look over and you're like, yeah, let's go. Let's go. And so she walks me over and hands me off and, and uh, I get to share the gospel with this guy. And nothing crazy happened. No fireworks went off. We certainly didn't tack on another baptism that night. Uh, but I got to share the good news about Jesus Christ. And in particular, I got to share about how powerful the cross is because of the very crux of this guy's problem, his issue with God, his issue with himself, is I'm too sinful for God. I'm too bad. I'm too jacked up with a little bit more colorful language in there, right? And so I got to share and say, no, 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 no. You haven't seen Christ yet. You must not see, you must not have heard about him yet because his cross is so big that you can imagine worse and it's still not enough. We sing that hymn, my sins, they are many, but his mercy is more, it's more, it's more. And we get to share that with people. We get to share that with people who are in the very dumps of life and they worship the dump, by the way. You know this. They worship it. They like being in misery because it feels better than surrender. But you get over here and say, no, 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 no. Don't stay in the trash heap. Come on. Come on. There's a better way. There's a hope that we have. There's a hope that we have, and his name is Jesus Christ. There's a forgiveness that runs deeper than anything you've ever done. 
And every ounce, and it's a hard word to use, but people need to hear it. Every ounce of rebellion against God can be wiped away. So there we were. And he, he, kind of a a dual shock value. I'm like, okay, I came at you hard. What's what's about to happen? And and, and what what he was willing to do was say, let's just continue the conversation. Let's, let's continue to, to get together sometime soon. And so that's, I keep on going after him. He's kind of playing hard to get, and that's okay. That's okay. Listen, this is a really important sidebar point about evangelism. You're, it's not your job to save someone. It's your job to share the living Savior with someone. Let God do the work. You be faithful. And yes, be urgent, too. That's what I told him at the very end. I said, hey, what are you going to be up to tonight? What are you going to do now? I said, ah, I'm going I'm to go drink. It's going to go drink, 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 drink. I said, so, so you're, you're telling me you've, you've, you know you need him. You know you have to have God. And yet you're still going to go walk back into this. I want to say with every ounce of love that I have for a person I first met, this is very urgent. This is very real. This is very serious. Will you kneel? Will you believe in Jesus Christ? And, and I, that's all I can do. And I can leave that moment and just be, get on my knees for this fellow. That's what I'm going to do. And God willing, he gives me another opportunity to sit with him. But that moment, that moment is like spiritual steroids in the life of a Christian. Is it not? That's, that, that amps us up because at the very foundation of our life, or the way we spend our lives, there's nothing more important to the Christian than to see the name and beauty of Jesus on the move. That's all we are called to care about. That's all we have when you get to join Christ, and he has joined us to himself, not only in his salvation, but in his mission. He's called us to go out and make disciples. And so when we get to do that, our joy, as David said last, uh, last week, when you partner in the gospel, joy is going to soar. And so we have that opportunity. One of the natural ways for you right now, if you are struggling with spiritual depression, share the hope that you have. And watch Christ give you joy again. Watch him do it. We must share these stories with one another. We must strengthen one another like this. I want to know when you're sharing the gospel, and you should know when, uh, when I am sharing the gospel, let's walk together to encourage one another in this. Is that a church we want to be? Amen. Well, because it's certainly the kind of man Paul is. This is the kind of life he lived. He is in chains. And yet he rejoices at seeing the gospel move forward at any expense. But in the midst of that progress, Paul tempers us just for a moment with something that we're not quite ready for. It's a surprise in verse 15. He just told us in verse 14 about these brothers who are bold. And then he says this in verse 15. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaimed Christ out of rivalry, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? So what? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Now we have to make sure we hear this paragraph right. What did Paul just say? He just got out of saying in verse 14 that most of the, the, the Christians, most of the Roman believers, not just many, he said most, most of them in Rome have gained a boldness to speak about Christ. But now, he says that some of those emboldened believers are doing it with the wrong motive. 
So check out what he's not saying. Let me clarify. He, in verses 15 and 17 in particular, Paul is not saying that they're preaching the wrong gospel. Rather, they're preaching the right gospel for the wrong reasons. So Paul's going to talk, he's going to speak quite differently, as we'll see, to these people in chapter 1, as he will about the, listen to the language, dogs, evildoers, those who mutilate the flesh in, in, Romans, or in, in uh, chapter 3, verse 2. And then later on, 18 or 19, somewhere he says they walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. That's how he talks about those people. He doesn't talk that way here. Those are wolves over there. They're trying to devour a church. But these people, are they competitive? Yes. Are they selfish? Yes. But are they Christians? Yes. They are. These are Christians in Rome that are not looking to destroy the church, but for some reason, for some reason, they are looking to cause Paul harm. And the way that Paul sees that, the way that he talks about it, the way he addresses it, is really important for us. He is much more concerned about the gospel advancing even when it is at his own expense. Did you see that? They're thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. Paul loves Jesus so much and he loves the pagan headed to an eternal hell so much that he will endure trouble from those wearing the same jersey as he is. That's spectacular. And so we have these two groups of evangelists in Rome. And let's compare them for a second. First, we need, again, to, to realize or, or to see the common ground. The most important thing that they have in common is they both, both of these groups are advancing the gospel. They're advancing the gospel. You see that in your notes. Both of them are preaching the right thing. They want to see the name of Jesus go forward, and all of them seem to be Christians. But what is so different, again, is why they're preaching Christ, this one group, why they want to see the gospel advanced. Paul says that they're preaching from envy and rivalry or, or selfish ambition is the word. So how's that possible? What is Paul really talking about here? Who are we describing? What does it mean to be someone who preaches Christ faithfully and do it with selfish ambition? Well, I think he's saying that there is a way to faithfully, to truly evangelize but with the intent to further your own name at the same time. Listen to me on this. This is really important for us. There is a way to be passionate about the Lord and also passionate about yourself at the same time and try to link them together. This is to live for God's glory while hoping that your glory can ride along too. See, I recently heard an author use this phrase, uh, to photobomb Jesus. You familiar with this word, photobomb, right? Where you're, uh, you're out there on the beach, seven o'clock, two best friends are taking the best possible sunset picture, but they left some room. Left a little bit of room in between their heads, and so your immature 13-year-old son, I'm kidding, they're mature, but maybe not, I don't know. Anyway, so they, they come, they come, uh, and, and he, he, sticks, he sticks his head right in between the, the two sisters, and right? Ruins the picture, and it lives on in infamy. Well, we can do that with Christ. We can do that with Christ too. We can preach his gospel. We can spread his fame as long as our face, our glory, somehow sneaks up in the picture too. 
we must beware of saying, look at Jesus and look at me too. This is the danger in Philippians chapter 1. You see this in your notes. We must beware of saying, look at Jesus and go ahead and look at me too. It's so hard to detect in your own heart. It's hard to see. But we must be ever so careful not to preach Christ as Lord with an eye to our own kingdom advancing. And Paul goes further though. You see how he's using it. He says that this is going to, this, this, this look at Jesus and look at me too mentality is going to surface in the way that we treat other people too. This is what's happening to Paul. There were some using Paul's chains as a way to belittle him in order to bolster themselves. This is tricky, but it is very possible. And I think the principle for us here is also this, that we must beware of comparison as a means for personal influence. Whether we're preaching the gospel together or just in general in the life of a church, we must be aware of comparison as a means for personal influence with one another. These preachers, these, these evangelists, these Christians were using Paul's suffering as a contrast to themselves to make themselves look better, to look stronger, to be the more appropriate God-ordained leader. That's what they were trying to do with him. And that came from, he tells us, envy, envy. You see another person's walk with Christ. You see how God is using them. You see their faithfulness. You hear their stories. And it's so tempting, isn't it, to compare and perhaps even contrast or tear down another faithful believer as a way to feel better about your walk, about your obedience, about your evangelism. And so we can be a church that even has fellowship with one another and share the same doctrine with one another, love the same Lord together, and yet be divided out of envy. It really takes us back to the 10th commandment, doesn't it? You shall not covet. Coveting doesn't exist in the life of a church. It can't. It's too explosive. So, you have to notice, though, what Paul does in verse 18. In the midst of all this stuff, he says, rejoice. I rejoice. They're doing it for false motives. Go on, the, the, the gospel's moving forward. But I have a question about that for a second. Is Paul okay with it? Paul, I mean, are you, are you saying like, morally speaking, you don't have an issue with these men and women who are preaching out of envy toward you? Are, are you okay with that? Well, a little observation will help us answer that question. Because Paul uses that famous phrase, it's really just one word, but selfish ambition in verse 17. Now, maybe you've re- this isn't the first time you've read through Philippians. Where else do we see this phrase, selfish ambition? Chapter 2, verse 3. I got, I got some signal callers out today. I love that. That's fantastic. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourselves. So now that is, isn't that interesting? So Paul is letting these envious, selfishly ambitious preachers go on right ahead. But then in just a second, he's going to tell this church, you better have none of that in your life. better have none of that in your life. So how do we do this? How do we figure this out? What's this tension here? Well, as we're going to discover in the coming weeks, one of the main internal core dangers the Philippians are facing is division. It's division. They're all Christians, they're all on the same team, but they're not getting along. 
people are acting selfishly. So isn't that timely? And isn't that pastoral of Paul already? As he sits under arrest in Rome, he speaks of these selfish preachers who are trying to squash his influence. At the very same time, the Philippians are dealing with a very similar issue. And so Paul is able to very quietly and clearly show the proper response when a brother or sister is acting for themselves, even in the midst of it, even though we know it's not okay, even though we need to address it, even though it shouldn't be a part of any church, we can still rejoice when the gospel advances. Because if we're looking for the gospel to advance and for us to never struggle with one another, for us to never sin, we'll blow up. We won't make it. And so we have to be patient. And as we're going to see in a couple weeks, we have to be humble. We have to be humble to work with one another no matter the personal cost. Paul sees it as God advancing the gospel. If God is using people to make disciples, Paul's going to rejoice, period. So the bottom line of the Christian life, the bottom line is to see the gospel move forward. Paul doesn't care about his name. I love that. He doesn't care about his own name. He doesn't care about his own fame. He has has that precious virtue called self-forgetfulness. He just doesn't care. He doesn't care about himself. What does he say in Philippians 3? Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. That's all he cares about. If I get Christ and I see Christ move, I'm happy. I am rejoicing. That is beautiful. It's necessary for us. It was so necessary for me to, to read these six verses again. If, so whether it is his chains or it's competitive brothers in Rome, the gospel is advancing. He's rejoicing. Christ's name is Paul's most important thing, and it must be our most important thing too. Christ be, must be our only ambition. That's the word I want to use. That's the word I want to leave us with. And I see this, you see this in your, in your notes as the main idea, the, really, the punch of, of this whole section in Philippians 1 is to make the cause of Christ your only ambition. To make the cause of Christ your only ambition even when it's at your own expense. That's a critical follow-up that Paul has in 15 to 18 there. Make the cause of Christ your only ambition, even when it costs you, especially when it costs you personally. And so I ask, is that us? Is that us? Is the cause of Christ, the gospel moving forward, is that what we live for? So I'm praying for more and more of this in my life. And as pastors, I can guarantee you when we're together, we're praying for more and more of this in our church. And so let me ask you some practical steps. What are some practical things we can do to make Christ our greatest ambition? What, what can we do to make Philippians 1, 12 to 18 here and make it real here? Let me give you four brief challenges. Number one, start here. Pursue the face of Christ. Pursue the face of Christ. You'll, we're going to discover as we walk through Philippians that Paul is entirely mesmerized by Jesus. He is everything. And that situates him so much more. Paul acts based on how much he loves his Savior. The same must be for us. You can't live for a Christ that you don't love. Very plain. You cannot live for a Christ that you do not love. And so gospel mission, gospel progress, gospel, traction in your neighborhood will go nowhere until Christ is your all in all. 
Once he consumes your heart, you'll see the gospel move. Number two, leverage pleasantries. Leverage pleasantries. If you're in a conversation with another believer, try as best you can to talk about the gospel in your life. Get there with them. Pursue it together. What circumstances does God have you in? But don't stop there. How is God using those circumstances as an opportunity to make his name great in South Walton and to the ends of the earth? That's what we need to do. That's the kind of conversation we must have. Where, have you, uh, where lately has he used you to move his gospel forward? Tell us about it. Tell us about it. Let's get past these really thin surface layer things. I understand society, sociologically speaking, we do it. We probably need to still. It's how you get comfortable with one another, how you feel each other out. But if we stop there, we are not salty. We don't look anything like the church. We look like the world. And so we have to break through the surface layer quickly and get real with one another. Challenge three, share the gospel this week. Here we go. I'm in if you're in. Where is it? Who is it? Who can you share the gospel with this week? What does it look like? Who's that? Who are those two or three people that have already popped in your head? Pray, pray, pray for opportunities and pray, pray, pray for boldness. Because Paul, he says this in Romans chapter 1, verse 14. He says, you know, I'm under obligation to preach the gospel. What if we started talking like that? I'm indebted to these people. I, I, I have a responsibility for them. That's how Paul thought about the Gentiles. That's how Paul thought about people who had never heard the name of Jesus. They're, they're, they're so deeply inside my soul that I can't breathe, live, move without thinking about them, about going to them, about making sure the gospel makes it to them. I'm so far on the other side of that pendulum swing. I don't, I don't, have it, I don't feel an indebtedness to my lost neighbor. But I pray, Lord, bring me, bring me, bring me, bring me, bring me. Get me there. So you can't live for a Christ you don't love, and you're not going to love your neighbor either. You know, we're not going to be able to love our neighbor until we see Christ as who he is, until we understand that it's, he has put the Great Commission on our backs with his power and said, go. And so we can. We can and we should and we must. Last challenge. Rejoice when the gospel advances through someone else. This is a, 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 biblically, a biblical mindset for building true biblical or, or, or authentic fellowship in the life of a church. Rejoice when the gospel advances through someone else. When you hear someone share the gospel, no matter who it is, celebrate. Even when it's someone who's offended you. Even when it's someone you don't get along with. Even when it's someone that you've been envious of. Perhaps the Lord is even working on your heart through their obedience just writhe out, just get out the sin that's inside your heart. Let's drop envy, let's drop rivalry, and let's pursue Christ's gospel moving forward, no matter what, at any expense. Make the cause of Christ your only ambition. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you. Pray you would use this sermon for your glory please thank you for the opportunity thank you for sustaining me here thank you for the necessity of your word you have written it into the very fiber of the Christian life to communicate with us through your word 
And so we kneel before it, God, and we, we begin to, to search inside our own hearts. Where is the cause of Christ not an ambition in my life? Where is it not even on the radar? And would, you, would you show us, Lord, that every circumstance, every single circumstance you have for us is for the spread of your name. That's hard to think about. That's hard to figure out, Lord. And it needs, we need wisdom, and so we ask for it. Give us wisdom on how to share the gospel. Give us power to share the gospel, Lord, that, that we would not uh, search around and try to find the perfect word. We'd just be faithful. Help us be faithful men and women of, uh, uh, who have been bought by Christ and share that exact same message with others. We trust that you'll work. We trust that you'll move this week amongst believing conversations and unbelieving conversations. Help us in both, we pray. Amen.